Well, good morning, and have a seat if you would. And uh, well, welcome to the Leeward campus, uh, Christ Community. It's a beautiful morning, and uh, it's daylight savings time. We're all rested, right? I uh, told the first service, they were all just bright and engaged the first service. I don't know what happened, but uh, it's great. But it's great to have you here. I hope you sense the presence of Christ here, and uh, we're just delighted you are here. So one of my favorite American writers, if you've been to uh, Christ Community for a while, or if you're visiting, I'll let you know that right now, is Mark Twain. Anybody Mark Twain fans? And uh, there are many quotes that Mark Twain had that have sort of been uh, forever etched in the American landscape. Uh, One of my favorites is Mark Twain once said, there are three kinds of lies. Remember that quote? (laughs) There are lies, damnable lies, I like saying that, and statistics. (laughs) Uh, We all chuckle when we hear Twain's really long-lasting words because they resonate with us. The longer we live, the more we realize that people deceive us, and there are lots of lies out there. Sometimes it comes from an intelligent professor who has arrayed a lot of statistics or information to persuade you, right? Sometimes it comes from a slick, smooth salesperson who wants to sell you something. Sometimes it comes from a politician. And yes, sometimes those damnable lies come from preachers. There are lies everywhere, but the lies that are most dangerous to you and to me today, are not just what people tell us. The lies that are most damnable are the lies we tell ourselves. And I want to suggest for your thought this morning that there are two lies in our inner world that we tell ourselves. We believe. We live as if we believe them. And they do not lead to human flourishing. They actually lead to enslavement. The first one is the good enough lie. You ever told yourself this? Hey, you know, I'm really cool. I'm fine. I'm good enough just the way I am. See, the good enough lie hides behind success, intelligence, popularity at school or with friends, wealth, abilities, and religiosity, actually. And all this performance we do, all this goodness we do, deceive us to think, hey, you know, I'm pretty good on my own. I don't really need anybody. It's a lie we often tell ourselves. But there's another lie as well that is not uh, the good enough lie. It's the bad enough lie. This lie lurks behind our shame and past and failures. It's a lie that says, I'm really so bad. I mean, what I've done and my past and I couldn't possibly be loved or accepted. I'm beyond hope. These two lies often shadow our inner worlds and they suffocate us. And to some degree, all of us face these lies. We tell these lies to ourselves in different contexts at every stage of our life, whether we're young or older. Last week, as we have been making our way, if you're newer to Christ's community, we've been making our way this year through the Bible in our open here journey. And we looked at Rabbi Paul, or Saul, we looked at his life and his amazing transformation in Christ and the transformation of the gospel. But if we look under the hood 
and peer deeply into Saul's inner world, we see how he struggled with both lies like we do. On one side, Paul was brilliant in intellect. He had a strong religiosity. My goodness, talk about piety. And Paul must have thought at times in his life, he'd buy the lie, hey, I'm pretty good, you know, I'm doing pretty good compared to the guy next to me. But if we peer into Saul, who becomes Paul's heart, we know in some of his other New Testament letters that Paul also dealt with the damnable lie that he was too bad. If you remember, he says in very strong language, hey, I'm the worst of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm beyond hope. Now, a very religious Saul could clean up his outer appearance, but he couldn't clean up his inner world. But when Saul encounters the resurrected Christ on that dusty road to Damascus and embraces the good news of the gospel, the truth of the gospel shatter the lies that have suffocated him, obliterate them. They open his blinded religious eyes They release his suffocating soul and they set him on a brand new path of human flourishing in life as he was designed to live the life he really longed to live. We hear much about this on Paul's third missionary journey in the book of Acts. During his third missionary journey, Paul pens a letter, not a letter of high abstraction or philosophical utterances, but out of his own personal transformational experience. A letter that centers in on the gospel, what the gospel is. And he pens this letter to the uh, church, the young church at Rome. Now, many people, religious and irreligious, who study this era of literature, and Greek particularly, will say that this letter is perhaps the greatest literary masterpiece ever written in Koine Greek. And it is the book we're going to look at this morning. So I'd like you to turn with me, if you haven't already, either electronically or paper, if you brought a Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans in the New Testament. Now before diving in, let's set the context because we're going to look at chapter 3. So that's where I want you to kind of stay with me. But let's step back just a moment. Paul will spend a great deal of time in the first century addressing both the irreligious and the religious. He addresses each one of us here this morning. He frames his literary genre or scaffolding in very tight, precise logic. So if you like that tight kind of logic, Paul's text is for you. He wants to let us know what the gospel is. But he first tells us that something terribly has gone wrong with the world. Not only with the world, but with your world and my world. Humans who were created as the sparkling crown of God's creation are not only badly broken, Paul will say in great length in chapter 1 and 2 of Romans that we as human beings are complicit in this brokenness. Though we know the truth about God's existence and his cre- uh, creator-ness from creation, we, Paul says, exchange the truth for a lie. Whether we are religious or irreligious, God's evidence of his existence, his beauty, his power surround us. I was reminded of that this week. In fact, yesterday I uh, left L.A. very early in the morning. 
the plane that I was flying on, the wheels were up at 6 a.m. That's an early flight. And in L.A., it was pitch black. And I'm working away in my computer, and the guy sitting next to me, I, you know, I'd sort of grunted a little bit. I, I mean, I hope I'm just not the most gregarious in any setting, let alone at 6 o'clock in the morning in a plane after I've been speaking, right? With very little sleep because I was worried my alarm wouldn't go off. You been there? Or the wake-up call wouldn't hit me. I had an alarm and a wake-up call. That's another story. But... So sit with me on the seat. I'm sitting there. I'd said basically, hi, the guy was going to Baltimore. You know, we were heading east. Um, and I'm working away. It's pitch dark. At 30,000 feet, the guy next to me is looking out the window. I'm just, he goes, I hear him go, wow. You know, recently at L.A., when you hear wow, it's kind of worry, worrisome. <laughs> and I looked, and he had his cell phone out, out the window. And at 30,000 feet, as we went east, the sun was rising at 30,000 feet. I looked, and I said, yeah, that's wow. It was brilliant. You could not, not say something because the glory of creation surrounded you. It's like a sunrise at 30,000 feet or a clear blue mountain lake. Paul lays the logic in Romans 1 and 2. You cannot not know that God is there through what he has made. But even knowing that, Paul will say, rather than worshiping this God who created all of us, and the beauty of creation, we find other things to worship. We would rather worship. We exchange the truth for God, of God for a lie. We make a heart that was designed to worship God an idol factory. We have idols of human sexuality, of sexual pleasure over God. The accumulation of wealth and power, popularity with others, prestige. And we worship them and we worship us. This is the picture Paul is painting. It's dark in chapters 1 and 2. And when we slow down long enough to know, to think from our frenetic lives, we realize we are broken and the world around us is badly broken. I was reminded of this this week. Yes, this is true. Um, Earlier in the week, I got up on my way to the office. And uh, I uh, decided to do something I don't usually do. Because I was heading out of town and I had this reimbursement check but I thought, well, I'm just going to drop it off the bank because I have no time this afternoon. I've got to be in the airport. So um, I get up my normal time. It's dark. Um, I go to Starbucks to get me going. And uh, I decide before I go to the office, I'm going to go by my bank and deposit the paycheck or this reimbursement check. And uh, so I'm not thinking anything of it. And it's a little before 7 o'clock. And I'm driving, pick up my Starbucks coffee, I drive to my bank. I never go through the drive-thru early in the morning. I never have, I don't think. I didn't know what time it opened. Maybe you know that, but I'm figuring 7 o'clock sounds right. And if they're not open at 7, what's wrong with them? I'm a morning person. That's when life happens for me. So I go through Starbucks, I head to my bank, thinking I'm just going to go through the drive-thru and then head to the office and get ready so I can leave. So I pull up to my bank, it's other than my watch, it's maybe 7.05, 7.10, I'm thinking, there's nothing going on here. we got a problem. So I, I see the drive through is closed, so I drive up right in front of the bank with my lights on, on by the door, the stall right there, so I can see what the hours are. Now, I'm not thinking this is anything of a problem in the world. So I'm, it says 7.30, I'm looking, oh, what should I do? You know, should I come back? Should I go? And... 
you know, your pastor, I looked at a couple emails and then I listened to Open Here. Isn't that awesome? I'm sitting here listening to my devotional, Open Here, the Bible, you know, like a real good pastor, waiting to go through the drive through lane. Does that make sense? That sounds like a good thing to be doing at 7.15, between 7.15 and 7.30. But others must not have thought so. Because I'm listening to Open Here, literally in the book of Acts, listening, my car's off, my lights are off, I'm sitting right in front of the bank with my car. And it's dark. All of a sudden, this car comes right up to my side like this. Like I'm sitting like this, like this in my driver's seat. This bright light's pulled right up in front of me on this side. I'm whoa. Out pops a police officer. True story. This is my second encounter with the law. I'm telling you, I'm having a hard time with this. <laughs> and he's like, what are you doing here, sir? So, oh, my God. You know, I gave him my license. He checked me out. He said, are you a customer of the bank? He had to check with the bank. You know, if you see my name in the paper, I'm really innocent. <laughs> I never imagined I lived in that broken world. It made sense from that perspective. I was as innocent as could be. I was just trying to wait for the bank to open, for goodness sakes. But it reminded me again. Police officers do his job. Whoever called me in, I guess I look like a shady character, was doing their job. It's a fallen world, for goodness sakes. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 1 and 2. Both religious and irreligious are in a sinking boat and sinking fast. Romans chapter 2 also really addresses the hypocrisy of the religious. Paul knows a lot about this, after all. And it would be like in this day he highlights greed and sexuality and the brokenness and hypocrisy of religious people in that area. Today it would be like a pastor who is preaching strong against homosexuality or promiscuity or adultery and then hooked on pornography himself. That kind of hypocrisy. Or a Christian activist who is doing their best to bring prayer back in schools and Lord knows that she never spends time on her knees herself to pray. This is the kind of person Paul has in mind. And he says, irreligious and religious all face the righteous wrath of a holy God. We are in the same boat before a holy God. In Romans chapter 3, as it builds to our text this morning, as you feel and hear the argument and heart of Paul, you begin to see the dark backdrop Man, it's dark. But then we get to our text this morning. In 21 through 31, it is like the sunrise at 30,000 feet against a dark black sky. Something new is breaking forth in the world. Something new is afoot. And it is the gospel. And the gospel shatters the damnable lies we believe that enslave us and suffocate our souls and fill our souls with darkness. And it opens a brand new door to a brand new life, the life you were designed to live, the life I was designed to live, the life you long to live, and the life that Christ makes possible for us to live. So Paul is saying as we enter this text, both the religious and the irreligious are in the same sinking boat. And Paul says, let's get real. Let's stop believing those damnable lies. Let's get real. Let's get really real. And Paul, in his brilliant artistry, in this kind of logical genre, unpacks three questions without raising the question, but he answers them. 
In this text, there are three questions that Paul answers that are transformational. One is, who is God really? Secondly, who are we really? And third, what has God really done? Who is God really? Who are we really? And what has God really done? First, let's look at the first question in verses 21 through 22. Let me just reread that again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Notice, for there is no distinction. You see that? We're all in the same sinking boat. It's a dark place. When you look at verses 1 through 18, you realize how dark broken humanity is. But then, around this, these two little English words in verse 21, you have the sunrise of hope that rises. Earlier in the chapter, he says, no one seeks for God, but now we see the real truth that's compelling that, yes, God seeks everyone. Notice that, but now, a burst of hope. The God of the Old Testament, who was the God who brought the law and the prophets, the same God is still at work in the world. That's the idea. And because what Jesus has done on the cross, it is a brand new day for a broken humanity, for your life and mine. What Paul is saying in this text is, what ultimately matters is not what we have done, but what Jesus has done for us. What matters is not irreligiosity or religiosity, but faith or complete trust in Jesus' work on the cross. Now, you will notice as he addresses who God is, he will summarize this vast category by repeating a word twice. It is the word, in your English, righteousness. This is a hard word in English because we think of righteousness as someone who sticks their, you know, thinks that they're holier than thou. Someone who is self-righteous. Remember, in applying for a seminary many years back, that I went into the admissions office and the, the lady behind the counter, I mean, I'll never forget this. I came in and I often wear a chain around my neck. And the chain was kind of flopping a little bit outside my shirt or something like that. And she says, I, tell, I can tell you're not a student here wearing that chain. She looked at me like, I just felt like I'm the scum of the earth. Like, what's wrong with me? We've all had those self-righteous looks that look down on us because of some issue or struggle when the person themselves has many, many issues. But self-righteousness is not what this word means here. It is a summary word that describes God's infinite goodness and kindness and love and perfection. Paul plucks it out of the Greek language to be this summary word that captures the beauty and wonder and love and tenderness and kindness of God in his perfection, his holy perfection. So Paul is describing who God really is. And he says, let's get real about God, friends. Let's see him who, as who he really is. And now Paul turns his attention to the second question of getting real about who we are. Who are we really? You'll notice in verse 23, Paul is succinct, but he's power-packed. He says, for all have sinned. You see that text? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's unpack those three words. Very important. Paul doesn't tickle our ears, does he? He speaks the truth we need to hear. And what he is going to say in this small but important verse, 
he will say that you and I, as image bearers who are fallen and broken, are God's most glorious rune in the universe. We are, you are a glorious rune. Now notice he uses the word sin. The original language, this was used of archers and other kinds of places where you had to hit the bullseye of perfection. Sin here means to miss the mark of absolute perfection. If you are a student or you've been a student, you know what it's like to sweat out a test. And this kind of perfection, students, is 100%. Not only on one test, but every test you ever take. God does not grade on a curve. He demands absolute perfection of holiness in word and deed and motive. Sin is not just what we are doing. It's why we are doing what we are doing. Sin is not just wrong action, but wrong motive. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant Oxford literary critic and professor, said this well as he understood that sin is not just missing the mark, it is pushing back against the mark. And this is what Lewis says. He says, fallen humanity is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He or she is a rebel who must lay down their arms. We are all rebels. And to emphasize this, Paul adds another Greek word. In the English, it is translated to fall short. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying with this word that all of us fall short. It's like missing a flight. It doesn't matter if you miss the flight by one minute or a day. And I've done both. That's a whole other story. You missed the plane. There's no ride. You're grounded. That's the picture. It's to miss the flight that God has for you. His rescue. See, what we need to grasp is this next word because the language and structure and grammar build to this word, the glory of God. We all fall short of the glory of God. What is Paul saying? This word glory captures the beauty and brilliance of God in the Old Testament. But the focus is not just the statement of who God is. He's already told us that in righteousness. The focus in this section of his logic is who we are in light of who God is. And let's remember back in the Genesis account, if you've read the Bible, you know that we were uniquely created in God's image, unlike all of creation, right? So when we see this word, Paul uses glory of God He is saying, because we are made in God's image, we too are glorious. That you and I, because of our sin, because of our brokenness, fall short of our created glory. You remember in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, that after each day of creation, God says it's good. But after day 6, when humankind is created, he says, it is awesome, it is totally awesome, it is great. It's stunningly beautiful. It is Man and woman, male and female, in my image, are glorious like me. Unlike all of creation. Rabbi Paul grasped the depths of what it means to fall short of the glory you and I were created to experience and reflect for God forever. You and I are a glorious ruin. You were never created to just be good. You and I were created to be glorious. C.S. Lewis again captures this well. He says, 
There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Think of the person that you're sitting next to. Think of the person in school next to you, your teacher. Think of the worker next to you, your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Who are they? They're a glorious rune. And this is what he picks up. He says, these are mortal. And their life to ours is the life of a gnat, culture, civilization. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. These are immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Who are you really? You were created to be glorious. We are either immortal horrors or the most desperate ruin or everlasting splendors. Charles Spurgeon, one of the finest artistry preachers in the 19th century, brilliant with language. I love reading him. This is what he captures of this text. He captures the glorious ruin we are of the fallen created order. He says, all creation was meant to be a grand orchestra. The angels occupying the highest seats and sounding the highest notes. Yes, but Satan came and took away all the singers, spoiled their voices and ruined them. And now this world, instead of being an orchestra of praise, has become an arena, a battlefield for the lust and plunder and murder and sin. Once an orchestra of praise to reflect God's glory to the universe has now found themselves in hellish enslavement to the evil one and his ruthless, destructive, suffocating kingdom. Lost and enslaved in sin, we cannot extricate ourselves from from this lostness. We can't do it on our own. Along with all the created order around us, we groan. But listen, dear friends, you are destined for glory. We are lost, but not hopelessly lost because someone is seeking us. Someone is seeking us. This is what Paul says. He seeks both the religious and the irreligious because both, all of us need to be rescued. So what has God done really? This is where Paul goes in the text, verses 24 through 26. Notice Paul says that he just, we are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Paul bursts forth with an inspired pen, giving us the most glorious news imaginable. You and I are a glorious rune, but we've been given a costly grace to restore us by a perfectly righteous God through the atoning and saving work of Jesus Christ. Now he unpacks it with some intense, impregnated, beautiful words that we don't often use. Let me highlight them briefly. He uses the word justified. What is this grace 
as a gift, and how is it possible for us to receive? Justified is a legal term, and it means in a court of law to be declared not guilty, but it doesn't just mean that. As important as that is, it means also because of that we are welcomed into the holy, righteous God's presence as his son or daughter. That when God looks at us through the finished work of Jesus' atoning work on the cross, he can say like he said of his son on earth, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased because of what Jesus has done. Notice the word redemption. The costly grace that redemption brought. Redemption means, like with a terrorist or a kidnapper, think of, uh, if you've seen the movie Captain Phillips, um, someone hostily taking over someone, kidnapping him there or whatever, and demanding a ransom or a payment. And the picture here is that the evil one, in his evilness, has taken humans hostage. God himself is going to ransom them free and the cost is extremely high to get us back. The ransom price paid for us to be the people we were created to be. The restoration of our glory is unimaginable. Free to us. Extremely costly to God because it meant the shedding of his innocent of his son's innocent blood for you and me on the cross. Ephesians 117, Paul says, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace, which he just lavished on us. Now notice the word propitiation. That's another word we don't use very much. One of the ways to remember this is every time you commute to work, um, I often see him is billboards with a, Statement that says, injured, right? Call so-and-so. Because the idea of propitiation is a satisfaction for an injury. A payment that has to be made to satisfy an injured party. And God has been so deeply injured. My creation's fall and your fall and mine. That he needs satisfaction and payment. The Old Testament, this was a picture of the covering. It's called Yom Kippur, the day of covering. When the high priest, from the shed blood of an innocent lamb that looked to the lamb who would one day come, spread the blood on the mercy seat that allowed God to pass over the sins of his covenant people. Because God is holy and his righteous wrath needs to be satisfied. This is a grace gift beyond anything we could ever imagine. It came at such a high price. See, the difference between a paycheck and a gift, what is that? Notice the language of this text. It's a gift. It's a grace gift. There's nothing we can earn. You know, if you work at Starbucks or you work for a certain company, you get a paycheck. Makes sense, right? And you don't go up to your boss or the person who hands you the check or let you know the check is in your electronic account and go, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Do you? I mean, you might be grateful you got some money to pay the bills, but you just don't go, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, I don't deserve it. Thank you, thank you. How many of you do that? Why not? Because it's something you deserve. You've worked for it. But let's just say your parent or a loved one or a friend or a spouse gives you a marvelous gift at Christmas. A new car. <laughs> 
whatever it is, a phone, what do you say? Thank you. Thank you so much. You didn't earn it. It's a gift. The gospel understood transforms the human heart. And overflowing is gratitude. See, Paul, in pointing out the good news of what God has done to restore us, our restoration of his glorious ruin, Paul emphasizes three big ideas. He says, to a holy God, sin is a really big deal. To a merciful God, forgiveness is a really big deal. And to a loving God, sending his precious son was a really big deal. And he did it for you and me. For you, for me. Dallas Willard, our good friend who passed away this year, philosophy professor at USC, says it so well. He says, if we were insignificant, say if you were insignificant, our ruin would not be horrifying. This explains why even in its ruined condition, a human being is regarded by God as something immensely worth saving. Sin does not make it worthless, but only lost. At the foot of the cross, God's perfect holiness, do you hear me? Do you hear the good news in your heart and mind? God's perfect holiness and his pure mercy meet in the ultimate exclamation point throughout all eternity of God's awesome love for his broken creation. God gave himself. God himself did this to save you and me. See, man-centered religion is about what you and I can do. It is smothered in lies that suffocate your soul. Gospel-centered faith is about what Christ has already done. The gospel is not just another way. It is the new way. It is the way. It is the life-transforming way for you to live the life God designed you to live. Gospel is not just about making us better, dear friends. It's about making us brand new and restoring the glory we were created to reflect of God himself. So let's embrace the good news. The gospel shatters the lies we believe. It shatters the good enough lie. Because if we understand the gospel, we understand you are not good enough on your own. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. It's not being good. It's that Jesus makes it possible for us to be glorious again. So is your heart and mind this morning caught in a performance trap? Are you believing the good enough lie in your heart of hearts that you must be smart enough, attractive enough, wealthy enough, cool enough, successful enough, popular enough, religious enough, a good husband enough, a good wife enough, a good parent enough, or a good child enough to be loved and accepted by God? You and I can't be good enough for God. We can't. Jesus did it for us. God demands 100% perfection. That's who he is. Only Jesus can pass the test with flying colors. And he did that for you. 
and he did it for me. If we understand the good news and we embrace the truth rather than live the lie, if you've embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior in repentance and faith, you are wholly loved. There's nothing more you can do to be loved more. You are completely forgiven and you are fully pleasing to God, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. The gospel shatters the lies that suffocate us. A lie that we are good enough on our own or our performance. But it also shatters the bad enough lie. You are not bad enough, no matter what you have done or what someone has done to you, that you are without hope. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. Is your heart and mind caught in the shame trap? Are you believing the evil one's lies that because of something you have done or some past issue or some present struggle, you are too bad to be forgiven and loved by God? You're just too bad. But the gospel, if we understand it, declares, and it shatters this lie. It's not what you have done, but what Jesus has done for you. John Newton, who was in many ways a very despicable human being, slave trader, sexually promiscuous, human trafficker, when he encountered the good news of the gospel, his life was transformed when he experienced forgiveness and new life in Christ. He wrote the most famous hymn of the Christian tradition, Amazing Grace, and John Newton said this, I know two things in life. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great sinner. That's grace. That's transforming grace. See, the gospel of grace frees you up from the suffocating lies of shame or performance or approval from others. The gospel, if you embrace it with heart, soul, and mind, frees you up to be the person God created you to be, the unique person, and it's the life you long to live. The gospel changes everything. When you embrace the gospel, you can face a hopeful death and live a joyful life every day. If Christ is your Lord and Savior, all of us are going to die. We don't like talking about it, but we are. It's a matter of time. We don't know the moment. None of us do. But if you've embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, your eternal destiny is secure. And you can face death with hopefulness and confidence. When I uh, was at my mom's bedside when she died, she loved the book of Philippians, and I read to her Philippians. And when I hit 121, she smiled very lightly. Philippians 121 says, For me to live, Paul says, is Christ. To die is gain. The gospel allows you and me to face death with hopeful confidence and joy. But it also allows me and you to live life with joy every day in a new kind of freedom. You can forget what lies in the past. You can focus on today and the future. 
You are a new creation in Christ. You have a brand new identity. Hear me, your work, your age, your looks, your wealth, your popularity at school, your sexual orientation or desires need not, must not define you. Your Facebook friends, the number of tweets you get, does not define you. You don't have to be the center of attention. You don't have to always get your way. You don't have to be your best to impress others. Your identity identity is in Christ. You are a son or daughter of him. Heavenly Father looks at you and sees the righteousness of Christ and says, ah, this is my beloved son or daughter whom I'm well pleased. Amen? The power of the gospel frees you from enslavement to sin and through the power of the Holy Spirit transforms every nook and cranny of your life today. Your motives and your actions and the quality of your work you do this week in your job changes because of the gospel. How you treat your coworkers, your teachers, your fellow students is changed. The gospel transforms your neighborly love, generosity, your eager willingness to forgive others who hurt you. The gospel shatters those damnable lies you and I believe and it sets us free to live the life we were designed to live, the life our hearts long to live, the life we will one day live perfectly forever. So my question is, have you said yes to Jesus' good news? Let's bow for prayer and reflection. With your heads bowed this morning, I'd like to just chat with you as a pastor and as a friend. Have you said yes to Jesus? Have you embraced this good news? The only way you can be truly lost, dear friend, is if no one is looking for you. And you may not believe in God, but God believes in you. You may not be seeking God, but God is seeking you. You may have given up on God, but God hasn't given up on you. He awaits with open arms and nail-scarred hands. Will you respond to him? If you've never embraced Christ as your Savior, you've never understood the gospel, you do that in the quietness of your heart in faith and repentance. And if you've already embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me ask you, are you living a gospel-centered life? Is the gospel speaking into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday to your relationships, your work, your life? And are you sharing this wonderful gospel with others? Holy Spirit, speak through your word into each one of our hearts where we are this morning. In Jesus' powerful and resurrected name, I pray. Amen. Apostle Paul gives instructions as we respond around the Lord's table this morning. I think it's appropriate. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 6, it's interesting. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we gather around the Holy Communion table, we proclaim Christ's death. Why? Why is that so central to celebrating the Eucharist? Because the Eucharist or the Holy Communion table or the Lord's table shatters the damnable lies we believe. And we're reminded of what Jesus has done. And we live a life of truth rather than suffocating lies. And we celebrate that as God's people. Because Jesus' death on the cross is not about how good we are or can be. It's about what he has done for us. So when we take the bread and dip it in the cup, we proclaim the glorious death of Christ. And we look forward to his future return.
So at Christ Community, we practice open communion. That means that you don't have to be a member of Christ Community. But the Lord's communion table is open to all who have embraced the gospel, who have placed their trust in repentance and faith in Christ and what he's done for them. And if you have embraced the gospel and Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are invited to come. Find a community table near you. Uh, we'll gather around in smaller groups. We love to do that as a family. And take the bread and dip it in the cup and partake. The Lord Jesus, who died for you, who shed his blood for you and me, invite you to come to his table. Please come.